Pull up a chair if you dare. Greetings, everybody. Welcome, one and all, to the Book Exchange Podcast once again. This is episode eight. My name is Jude Joseph Lovell, the co-founder and co-host of the Book Exchange Podcast. Once again, I'm joined by my twin brother and co-founder, John. How are you, John? I'm doing fine, Jude. How are you doing? Doing good. Great to have you on. And ladies and gentlemen, if you have not uh, taken the hints so far, tonight we have a very exciting episode. We're going to be talking about Tales of Terror tonight. And uh, originally it was going to be Books of Terror, but then as John and I were preparing for this episode, we realized that there are some individual stories or uh, you know shorter works that we might want to talk about that are also pretty darn terrifying. And so we changed the name to Tales of Terror. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. This is one of our favorite genres, our favorite styles between the two of us, like um, uh, the horror style or the horror genre um, primarily, but but not exclusively. Um, we may not be talking only about chiefly horror, but also there may be other stories we mentioned tonight that are terrifying in a in a way that perhaps doesn't correspond so much with the horror genre, but is just uh, frightening in some other way, given the tools of the writing trade. So we're going to be talking about these stories tonight. So um, what we're going to do here, John, uh, because we have a, a jam-packed episode and a lot of things that we'd like to cover, um, I'm going to quickly touch on a, a brief administrative note, and then we're going to jump right in, if it's okay with you, to discuss what we're both reading right now, and then we'll take a quick break and jump into the meat of the episode. How's that sound to you? Uh, it sounds great to me. Yeah, let's go with it. All right. I'm, I'm really excited about this. I don't know what it says about me, but I'm excited to talk about these uh, terrifying tales. So, Well, you know, that's it. That, what you just touched on, you know, what does it say about us? You know, we get that question a lot, as I'm sure you're going to go into but you know people are like why are you so into these you know frightening books or frightening movies well that's that's ex that's the reason for this podcast tonight yeah exactly we're going to talk a little bit about that about what 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 it is about horror but um but first of all just a, a quick note and I, I don't even know if i'd call it an administrative note it's just something that um both of us decided we wanted to mention so we've just been once again, we're very appreciative to everybody who listens to our podcast and joins us. And we've been kind of looking like, a, like John said, uh, one or two episodes back, we've been looking at some of the analytics, but not too hard because <laughs> neither one of us are really strong on the number side. I'm, a, I'm more of a words guy myself, but we've been following, <laughs> That's our, true. Yeah, been following our progress on the anchor uh, site on which we created the podcast. And we, and we noticed that we do have people now listening to us in as many as three countries outside the United States, as well as, a, you know, a growing listenership in the United States. And I'd just like to say to anybody who may be listening to this podcast from another country, uh, number one, thank you very much for tuning in, and we greatly appreciate it. Number two, you're very, very welcome. Um, I hope you've been able to see, from if for those of you that are listening, that John and I are interested in books and literary voice, voices from all four corners of the globe. 
And uh, it's very encouraging to us that anybody from another country would tune into the Book Exchange podcast. And so we're very humbled by that. But we also hope that you will continue to listen and enjoy hearing from us as we very much enjoy hearing from you. Not, and I'm talking to not only people that may be listening to this podcast from other countries, but also to the literary voices that come from your countries. And uh, we're greatly appreciated, appreciative of that. And John, is there anything you'd like to add? Well, I, not really. I'm just going to echo what you say. I mean, it, it, it's kind of amazing to us that anybody would tune into this and listen to this. And yet at the same time, you know, one of the reasons why we started the podcast is because, you know, reading and storytelling and uh, thinking about stories is so universal. People like to get lost in, in stories from everywhere. And so, uh, you know, in a way, it's not surprising that maybe people from other countries might tune in and, and uh, you know, assuming they can understand what we're saying. Uh, if they get anything out of this at all, it's really, that's a real gift to us. So, no, I, I agree. It's fantastic to see that people are finding the show, and I hope more people continue to find the show as we go along. Amen. And if you like it, tell your friends. But yeah, we're greatly humbled by that, and it's nice to feel part of an international community. So welcome to everybody. Indeed. So, so John, real quick, let's talk about what we're reading. I, I know that you had finished something recently, and I'm not quite sure what you moved on to, so why don't you share it with us? Yeah, okay. Really quickly, uh, I, I just finished reading um, one of the great works from William Faulkner. It had been a long time since I'd read any Faulkner of course, he's one of the great, the great American uh, writers uh, of any period. Probably, you know, one of the one. He's on the literary Mount Rushmore for sure huh, for for yeah. American writers. And, Congratulations! Uh, What's that? Congratulations! You made it through. Yeah, for getting through. That's right. Right. So I just finished one of his books called "Go Down Moses." I'd never read it. It's a. Uh, it consists of about seven interlocking stories that you know kind of take place in the same region and actually on the same plantation but it jumps back and forth in time and and uh amongst multiple generations as Faulkner often does and also uh deals with quite a quite a bit of, quite a few races uh, of people that exist on this plantation whether they're you know Caucasian or African Americans uh t t usually slaves depending on the time that he's you know talking about and so that's very interesting and timely to be reading, uh, to, be, to be getting that perspective. And also, uh, Faulkner goes into the Native Americans quite a bit. So, uh, as I was saying to you, you know, uh, no one, no one else seems to have seem to have that layered sense of history for a region that Faulkner does. At least in this country, it's just absolutely remarkable. It's like layers of strata in in geology. You know, he's able to go down and dig deeper and deeper and deeper and discuss what was going on in the 1600s and then somehow related to, you know, a story that's taking place in the 1930s or whatever. So it's, it's fascinating stuff. And, uh, you know, Faulkner is always very challenging, but I find also very rewarding if you, if you stick with him. So I just finished that and I've moved on to a book to talk about a, you know, a left turn, but, uh, I like to lead a, read a lot of travel literature. I'd like to learn about other parts of the world. So I just started a book that's about, uh, that's called Theater of Fish, Travels in Newfoundland and Labrador. Oh, and so, right. 
And uh, I do, I do have a personal connection there through my wife's family. My wife has a, a cousin. He's a very dear friend of ours uh, who lived and worked in, in Newfoundland for, I want to say 15 years. And he's a Canadian and he also did re he's, he's a social anthropologist, excuse me. And he also did uh, research in the Labrador area as well, as well. So I have a little bit of a personal connection there through my wife, but uh, so I'm really eagerly looking forward to getting into that book just because of my friendship with my wife's cousin and to understand a little bit more about what uh, he dedicated so many years of, of his life to studying the people of those regions. So that's where I am. How about you? <laughs> well, you talk about layers of history. You know, John has a, a, a wife who's from a Swiss um, descendancy and or for, she has a Swiss uh, background on her mother's side and, and there are layers to her family that I, I never even heard of. I didn't even know there was somebody from Newfoundland and her family. So that's really, that's really wild. And uh, yeah. yeah, it is. It sounds like a really interesting choice. Um, so a good one there. And for me, as you know, well, we talked a couple times over the last couple episodes. I was finishing that book about the Great Depression, the cultural history, and I, I finally finished that um, just yesterday. And uh, right, and it was a really rich experience and very helpful. But I, you know, <laughs> as I said, you, last, yeah, thanks. Uh, it was. I learned a lot from it. But I, I needed something lighter, and uh, fittingly enough, I turned to The Exorcist, which is what I'm <laughs> absolutely uh, devouring. Right now, I only started it yesterday, I think, and I'm like, you know, at least over a third of the way through it. It's by William Peter Blatty, and it was published in 1971. And, um, you know, everybody knows the movie version of The Exorcist. And as I said, I, I really wanted to read the original novel for years. I had trouble finding a used copy. Finally found this awesome, ratty, mass, mass market paperback edition that I'm chewing through like a dog chews through one of those toys, you know. <laughs> and uh it's a great time it's it has very i shared some of it with you john it has very kind of clunky old stephen king pretty shaky writing as far as prose uh the craft <laughs> of writing prose goes <laughs> but it 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 rips and and uh one thing i've really been struck by about it so far is how faithful the movie was to the novel it's almost exactly like it in the first you know, 120 pages. I was surprised. I, I think William Peter oh, Blatty wow. is the scriptwriter of The Exorcist. I, I may be wrong, or partial scriptwriter. Uh, along, along. I think with, so. Yeah, William Friedkin, the director, and there might have been another writer, but um, it's very, very similar to the movie. So it's going to be interesting to see where it diverges as I get in. But and, it, and of course, um, I have to jump. Of course, William Peter Blatty, you know, went on to be a director in his own right, director of of the world famous Exorcist three starring Patrick Ewing. <laughs> <Right. laughs> well, maybe, maybe starring's a bit of a stretch, but uh, with a cameo by Patrick Ewing. So, uh, you know, what else you need to know? And with the great Brad Dorff, who's a, who was a fine, he's a fine actor, but also kind of a horror icon, you know, most famous, he's been in tons of horror movies, but most famous for being the voice of Chucky, <laughs> the doll in uh, the, the child's play series. So I did. Anyway, that's a good kind of transition because I, I also just want to mention before we take a break that, so yeah, we are going to be talking about um, this whole horror genre and some of it may spill over into the film world because I, I know that I, for one, want to bring up some horror films and John and I love film and we could talk the whole time about horror films only. But some of the, you know, there's a, I think it's instructive to kind of um, 
sort of toggle back and forth at least a little bit from the book world to the film world when you're talking about the horror genre and 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 scary material you know so we're going to get into that a little bit but um anyway those are the books we're reading and why don't we step aside for just a brief moment and we'll come back and just dive right in to tales of terror can't wait Well, let's do it, John. Um, so what I thought I would do is, and, and I always kind of thought of this, that you, I, I should note to the audience that you and I have talked about scary stories and horror for years. Like, we didn't, we didn't really grow up on it. I wouldn't say it was very encouraged in our house when we were young. But like, it's not like our parents showed us horror films or anything like that. But... Um, we're of a, you know, we're of a certain generation, and we're we're of that generation that grew up in like the seventies and the eighties. And uh, I remember one thing that, you know, if there's anything we did when we were teenagers, was, was to gather at somebody's house, you know, oftentimes at the swimming pool, and with kind of an eighties horror movie, slasher movie. <laughs> oh, and uh, I remember being exposed to all kinds of horror movies um, from about the age 13, 14 on. Definitely against the will of my parents. They, you know, they were. They got more lenient as we grew older, but, you know, they weren't exactly serving us horror films, you know, even the older horror films, you know, when we were growing up. Um, but somewhere along the line, and John, feel free to jump in wherever you want to, but somewhere along the line, John and I, we both developed kind of a, 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 a respect, but also a love and kind of affinity for the horror genre and for like, you know, scary stuff. And, and I, would, I would use the word fascination too, at least in my case. Yeah, yeah, that's we, a good word. We yeah. can get into it. Yeah. yeah, and you know, ever since that started, I've kind—I of, know I've had like an ongoing dialogue with myself, and we've definitely talked about it between you and I. And other people have gradually come to us as well as they've learned that this is kind of like you know an important part of storytelling, or what we like about storytelling. All along the years, people have said. You know, especially people that don't really get scary material or horror stories. They've said, like, what is it about horror that draws you to it? Like, you guys are <laughs> you guys are pretty straight, straight up, uh, you know, nice dudes that don't seem like they're, you know, you're too driven to do horrific things or you would be necessarily into horrific material. But we know you're into these horror tales and what is it about them? And, you know, I've gotten that question kind of all along. I mean... Right, John? Oh, absolutely. I've gotten it many times as well from a variety of people, including my own wife. Yeah, I was going to say, and then it came into marriage because my wife definitely doesn't get it. And I know your wife doesn't get it. And, um, and there's also, you know, to be fair, there's like a lot of people that find like scary material, material or uh, disturbing material in books and literature and even imagery. It stays with them, you know, in a very unpleasant way. Whereas in most cases, it doesn't do so for me. It, it can stay with me as we're going to get into. But not in a way that I find. In fact, a lot of times it's kind of the opposite as we're going to talk about here. So what I thought I would do is just have a little dialogue before we even turn to the books and the stories. Just And I, I'll start, John, and I'm going to list some of the things that I really 
like about frightening stories or horror material. And as a way to mm -hmm. kind of attempt to answer that question for our audience, and then I'll turn it over to you and, and you can do, do the same thing, you know, give us some of your thoughts on why, you know, why you like horror and why you like scary material and being unsettled. And then we'll get into the books and the stories that we're really, that we really admire from this type of work. So uh, if it's all right with you, I'll just dive into that. Go ahead. Okay, so what is it about horror? You know, people people just ask me that sort of straight up. And when I say horror, you know, I don't want to keep saying it, but I'll interchange it with terror or frightening frightening materials. Uh, for me, you know, and I've really given this a lot of thought, not only just recently, but o over many years, because I really do like this kind of material. And one of the things that, that I would say just kind of straight up in response to that question is that, you know, you really feel alive when you're frightened. You know, when you're scared by something, a very increased sense of, for lack of a better term, sensitivity or even sensuality, not in a sexual way, but like, you know, your senses are alive. And when you're feeling fear, that's like one of the ways that they're the most heightened. And I've always kind of noticed that about these tales and feeling alive feels good. So I'm going to interject right there because uh, one of my, not to cut you off too much, but I'll just say that one of my first notes when I was, you know, taking notes about this, this question was about like likening, you know, the horror fan to someone who's like a thrill seeker and like someone who oh. just like, who, like, who has to go paragliding or has to bungee jump off the uh, golden gate bridge, or we all know the kind of person I'm talking about, but uh, I liken it to that kind of person where they're they're looking for that kind of uh, the challenge of it and the adrenaline rush of it. And I realize now just in what you're saying that, of course, that's related to fear, because a lot of the charge of in that thrill is that, you know, there's a fear element like I could lose my life here. But oh, you know, yeah. like you said, you, but that, that rush of feeling alive in that moment, that's a really interesting point. But go ahead. Well, yeah, and and yeah, no, I want you to interject wherever you can because that's like more like an authentic discussion between us, yeah. you know, which is sometimes like a free for all inside of a wrestling ring or something. But um, <laughs> related to that, you know, I came up with this term of my own, which I would call extreme distraction, and this has been very relevant in the last twenty years of my life. I certainly enjoy life and being a father and a parent and and all that comes with it, but there are a lot of responsibilities, mm -hmm. and. And sometimes it can be very difficult, right? And uh, that and that's true for all of us as adults, whether we have children or families or not. But Absolutely. being an adult is kind of hard. And horror for me is extreme distraction. And I mean by that, like kind of escapism, like that people like from reading and from movies, but times 10. I noticed that if I'm really scared by a horror story or a horror film, and it's a lot easier to do on film than it is to do with words. I'm going to get to that in a second. Mm -hmm. um, you're not thinking about your problems. You're really just trying to get through the movie alive or the, uh, the, the book alive. Yeah. It, effective tales like this immerse you in it so much that you're just worried about your own skin, literally, you know, because you kind of detach yourself from the rest of your world. And when you come up for air, I like that sensation that I've been able to remove myself from things that are bothering me or, or that are tough to kind of get through and so horror and 
scary material has become a reliable source of that for me. So that's one of that's one of my reasons. And and, and, and that's, then, I would liken that to you know for some people that's like comedy. You know, it's it's a very similar reason. Like mm-hmm. I just want to I just want to take an hour and a half and just laugh and feel good. Well, that's fine. Right. That's a that's a totally for the same reasons. Just because you know you got pressures, you got stresses in your life, and for some people, you know, we get a lot, a lot out of that too. But for some people, you know, just that uh, I call it turning turning my brain off. I say that to my kids and my wife all the time. I'm going to turn my brain off for an hour and immerse myself in a movie or whatever. And if if it's a horror movie, you get that kind of separation from from like and and you make a great point. Like how it just you need that sort of relief. You need to like just separate from all the stresses in your own life. But you also get that kind of adrenaline rush that you can't re- you wouldn't get that from comedy, you know? And if you don't like that, that's fine. Yeah. You don't have to go there. But if you do, it's kind of hard to get in other places. Yeah, yeah, you're so right. I mean, laughing at a joke, I- I'll never feel the same way about comedy personally. Some people do, as you said. But laughing at a joke or a funny story or something like that gives me nowhere near the same thing as, like, an authentic scare. Authentic scare, I'm, you know, like I said, I'm, just a- I'm trying to get to the next page. And my mind is nowhere near the rest of my life. And I like that about it. Yeah. And then for, for me, the last reason before I turn it over to you is now we got to remember in my case, I, I'm a writer and I, and I, I really enjoy writing and the fit and the creative process behind writing. And I started getting really into it when I was around 20 years old, around this, you know, close to the same time that I was entering into adulthood. And for me, the really the real draw of terror and horror in films for sure but definitely in books is how impressed i am at the creative and artistic accomplishment when a writer is successful at creating that dis- extreme distraction for me mm. like when i get literally scared by a movie or even by a book which as i said is a, is a lot harder but i have some good examples coming up of things that were scary um i think that's incredibly impressive and i come away from it once i've calmed down going how the heck do they do that and i and i always want to do that myself but horror terror tales and at least the fictional uh landscape is like i almost find it too intimidating even to try to write i did try to write a horror story three or four years ago um it was called mr nobody and it was (laughs) it was based on this imaginary character my daughter came up with and i was really trying to make it scary and i Lopped at it to be honest i totally blew it i couldn't i couldn't do it and i find it very impressive when somebody can create uh a work of art that's frightening enough to make me kind of catch my breath and after it's over i'm like man how'd they do that so that's that's what it is for me in a nutshell and i'm going to kick it over to you because i'm interested to hear what you have to say about why you're into scary material and horror well all right. Um, I think you brought up a lot of good points there. And um, I'm going to go off script right out of the gate because actually, I, I think you have dabbled. I'm going to talk a little bit about two stories you, you wrote, not not in detail. So don't don't get scared. But um, my brother here is a writer. He has a short story collection um, that I really like and admire, which is called We'll See You When When We'll See You When We Get There. We'll see you when. Right. Yeah. Um, Anyway, but you have two stories in there. One is called Suicide Station, and the other one is called Fracture. And we're not going to—we won't get into the 
details of those stories, but I would argue those are two stories where you did try to play around with horror tropes and horror ideas. Um, you know, True. with a good amount of success. I mean, uh, Suicide Station is is a little bit sci-fi as well, but there are some really freaky moments in it. And Fracture is like a gothic tale that was based on some of my brother here's experiences uh, staying in old houses in, in rural England during his honeymoon. Uh, but there are a few moments in that, like there's an apparition in the hallway uh, that I recall that the sleeper kind of wakes up and he sees something there. And then, of course, uh, where the guest who's staying in, in this old B and B ends up at the end. I mean, there's some horror elements there. So, uh, I think you have dabbled in, in horror elements with your own writing, maybe a little bit more successfully than, than you've let on, but I'll, I'll leave it. I'll leave it for our listeners to go check that book <laughs> out if they want to. I think it's available on Amazon. Um, but, uh, thank you. I got I'm going to interrupt just to quote one of our favorite movies, dead boat society and say, thank you for that trip down in Nisha Lane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Except we're not, I'm not going to burn that book. Cause I, I like that book quite a bit. So um, anyway, but uh, yeah, I, thanks for kicking it over to me. I, I think you had a lot of good thoughts there. I mean, of course I get the same question a lot and I, and I've always, I've always thought about it. I, with me, I was, I was thinking about it and I kind of, I kind of uh, lump horror or terror, whether it's fiction or movies into sort of three general categories. And one of them would be like, you know, the fun kind, which is like, you know, kind of goofy, silly fun, which is, I would put like a lot of Stephen King in that category or even like, right. you know, movies that are very gory, but it's just sort of silly, you know, are, are like uh, themed, you know, serial killer movies like happy birthday to me or April fools that, I mean, horror that you can't really take seriously, but it's just kind of, it's like a, it's like a fun house ride. Right. You know, and you get kind of a rush from it and it's fun and not everybody finds it fun, but if you do, you really like it. And so that's one kind of horror. And then there's another kind of horror, which to me, I would, I would call sort of like uh, the type of horror that, that explores the mysteries of the unexplained. Right. And, and I think that has a universal appeal. Everybody here re will read a story in the newspaper or a story somewhere or an article about, an unsolved mystery or something that just has no logical explanation. So, you know, that's things like ghosts or the paranormal or aliens or even monsters of some type, like, the, like legendary monsters, like the Loch Ness monster or Bigfoot or something like that, you know, that kind of thing where, where it's just, there are certain phenomena, you know, on our planet that nobody really has been able to fully explain and, most people, I would venture to say, would have some interest in that. When they hear a story like that, they perk up because it's just like that doesn't make any sense. Yet, yet enough people seem to experience something like that that there seems to be something there, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's one type of horror where you where you, you that kind of delves into. And I would lump you know ghost stories and you know movie like Paranormal Activity or. You know, uh, the reason that movie from several years back was so successful is because every almost everybody maybe hasn't had a, their own experience with like a quote unquote ghost in their house, but knows somebody who has, you know, and the whole idea of like, you know, somebody coming back after death, that's universal to every human being who ever lived. So, you know, you can understand why that has a wide appeal and you can understand why the first type has a wide appeal just because, like I said, it's like a it's like a, a thrill ride. You know, 
And then yeah, and I was going to bring up uh, just to interrupt for a second. I was going to bring up later one of the films I was going to mention today was Paranormal Activity because I saw that in the theater without knowing much much of, and it's one of these horror tales with uh, we won't go into a link, but it's like not much money was spent. There's not much gore. There's just dark and things going bump in the night. And that movie scared the hell out oh, of me. Oh, yeah. It scared me silly the first time I saw it. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Well, I was going to say that relates to your, that, that goes back to your comment about, you know, the challenge of really scaring somebody. And, and part of that is the power of suggestion. And we'll probably get into that a little bit. Yeah. You know, everybody knows, yeah. I mean, Spielberg famously knew, you know, the less you show the monster, in his, in his case, Jaws, uh, the more effective it's going to be. You know, and sometimes, usually, actually, the most subtle horror, it doesn't, you know, rub your face in the, in the, whatever's frightening. It just kind of implies it. And so that, you know, I think we're going to get into that more as we, as we continue this discussion. But the, the last category I would say, and really kind of the, the most interesting one, if you ask me, is sort of like what I would call psychological or even spiritual horror. You know, and, and that's the kind of horror that that truly gets under your skin. Now, and and one of the reasons I think it does that is because it it, it faces with utmost seriousness. You know, the the mysteries of evil. You know, and for me, there's a philosophical and even a theological element to my fascination with horror, frankly, because some of the be- you know what it does, it has a way. You know, and I'm talking about like unsettling stuff not not jokey gory not uh you know oh my gosh you know there may be aliens watching us i'm talking about you know the 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 kind of horror that truly gets under your skin or that plums you know some of the horrible things that human beings can do now do i get any enjoyment out of thinking about horrible things that could happen to me or my family no but weirdly enough what i do get a lot of enjoyment and fulfillment almost out of is thinking about man's capacity for evil. And I think horror, because evil is an, that's one reason why horror has such a wide appeal because evil, I don't care who you talk to evils, evils around us. We all know it's a part of the world Now you might call it something different, but we all have grappled with it. We read about it in the papers and see it on TV every single day that evil things happen and men can do truly horrible things. And for those of us who have sort of a philosophical, even a spiritual bent, you think, how is it that we who are capable of such, you know, great acts of kindness and love, you know, that the some good news show that everybody, you know, fell in love with and just, and with good reason, because some of the things that people were doing for each other during this pandemic were amazing. But at the same time, we seem to be capable of the most horrific acts why is that? And to me, it kind of goes, it's like the Solzhenitsyn quote, you know, the line that separates uh, good and evil goes straight down, straight through the middle of every human heart. Right. Good one. So, you know, that's like the best horror fiction, at least for me, kind of gets me thinking about that, you know, and, 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 and helps me to grapple with, with the mystery of evil, frankly, you know, in a weird way. Now, like with um, same thing with, with sexuality, you know, there's there, books and movies can explore sexuality in a way that's healthy. Right. 
because it's part of our fundamental human experience. We all need to learn about it. And there are mysteries there. And so there are ways that you can explore that in a healthy way, but it could easily slide into, you know, fetishism and pornography. And it's the same with horror, right? So with horror, you know, I find it most interesting when, when, when horror fiction or horror film helps me to kind of grapple with those mysteries, but it's not necessarily pushing my face in it either. And then that's a very fine line. And a lot of movies cross that line. Um, but again, like what I was saying before, the most effective frightening movies will scare you and truly unsettle you without rubbing your face in whatever the horrific element is. It's all the power of suggestion and implication. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, uh, and then the last thing I would say, you know, I, I, of course there's, there's an element like you've already described, there's an element of fun to horror that is just either it's with you or it's not, you know, you get a kind of a rush from it. And I certainly do. But I, I also think what horror does it, it, in some ways it helps you to confront your own deepest fears. And in some ways it's like, you know, it, it gets you thinking almost like, you know, what would I do if I were in this situation? Right. Or what wouldn't I do if my family was at, was on the line? You know, what wouldn't I sacrifice in order to protect those who I love? And a recent example of this that I think really, you talked about film, but it was a movie, the movie, The Quiet, uh, Quiet Place from about a year and a half ago or two years ago, which is oh, a very effective yeah. horror movie. But, you know, you, you'd have to be blind not to watch that movie and understand that that's a movie about family love and about defending what's yours, right? So mm-hmm. I think that yeah. I think sacrifice. Yeah. So I think in conclusion, I think I think the best horror can kind of in a weird way sort of point you in that direction, get you thinking about those kinds of things. And you know what uh, you know, in the case of extreme calamity, you know, will I be ready? And what would I be ready to give up, you know, in order to protect those that I love? So you know, I think, I mean, that's kind of a rambling answer, but those are among the elements that I find valuable in horror as a genre. Yeah, I think those are all great. And I, I just want, I'm glad you brought up that third category with the, the, or all the categories you brought up, which I generally agree with the different kinds of horrors uh, or scary tale, because they're going to be talk, talking about, I'm pretty sure examples of all those, but I'm, but that third one that, you know, the kind that really gets into stuff that can unsettle you you know, with, you know, good and evil and the nature of man, you know, the other point I would make about that with regard to horror and scary stories in general is that it, it also like when it's most effective, especially in that vein, it not only brings you in confrontation with what's inside of us, but also, and this depends on what you believe, but also it makes you contemplate or at least think about, uh, something that I would describe in one word as the possibility of perdition, Mm. you know, like you're, you're paying for the sins either that you committed or your father's committed or, you know, of all mankind and whether or not perdition or damnation is possible. And depending on what you believe, if a, work of horror, a terrifying story can get you to contemplate that subject at all, even if you are a non-believer. It's kind of like the ultimate terror, right? Like, like we're going to pay for what we did, you know? Mm. 
either to each other or to ourselves or to the earth or whatever. And horror brings up that uh, that question. And uh, again, for a lot of people, this is unpleasant, but it's, you know, it's kind of in some weird way intellectually satisfying for me to, you know, have something stir up those thoughts in me and let me contemplate kind of what, you know, some of those questions. So I just wanted to say that about, about it also. Yeah. And you could argue whether that's fully healthy or not, you know, to (laughs) this idea of perdition, or I need to, whether it's, I need to pay for my sins or I need to make up for wrongs that have been, you know, there's a way that that could be unhealthy, but at the same time, it's also related to the concepts of justice, right? You know, like, uh, uh, you know, making things right that had been wrong. Um, so yeah, I'm not quite sure how to finish that point, but I, I agree with you that, that, um, you know, horror has a unique way of kind of, it butts up against a lot of these kind of deeper questions. And I think that's a large part of the appeal for both of us really, uh, in this kind of material. Yeah, it really has a way of just digging your whole hand up to the elbow into the maw of humanity, you know. <laughs> nice. <laughs> you know? nice image. Nice image there. Nice horrific image. <laughs> like you're riffling through some guts or something. <laughs> at least you uh, so anyway, at least you use the mouth end when you were using that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, I used the one side. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, all right, so since we're going at it kind of hard and heavy here, we'll just keep going. Uh, we, won't, we won't break again until towards the end, but let's start talking about some of the tales of terror that have been the most effective for us. And I, I'll tell you what, I'll, uh, you just talk for a little while, so if you don't mind, I'm going to start with just um, a couple, oh, and then we'll kind of boot, boot some stories back and forth. And, and like we've you know, done before, uh, you know, whatever we can't get to, we'll try to list those at the end in sort of a quick manner. And uh, so that, you know, people can be exposed to some of the titles we didn't get to talk about and, and at least hear them and who they're who they're written by. So I'm going to start off. And <laughs> for me, um, this definitely falls into the kind of like the fun horror category. But I, I, I can't talk about scary stories without talking about Stephen King. <laughs> That's right. And I am. And, you know, Stephen King is a, I would love to do a whole episode on Stephen King. And everybody knows who Stephen King is. And, you know, you could talk about him for eight hours in a row. I'm sure we will. Um, so I don't feel the need really to uh, introduce Stephen King or tell people who he is. Everybody knows who Stephen King is throughout all of his. And he's, of course, very famous for being a, a spinner of horror tales. And, you know, and there's been like a gazillion movies made of his material. And they're always coming out all the time. But I do want to bring up two of Stephen King's works that I think are notable for kind of horror reasons that are effective. And I would say in general that Stephen King is kind of one of those fun horror writers, especially when you get into his early material. Um, I might even argue against him being a horror writer entirely these days. You know, um, I would say from somewhere around the middle of his career up to now, he still writes a lot, a lot of sort of horror books, and they're definitely marketed like horror books. But his books aren't aren't all that scary. They're they're really about kind of regular people being put into sort of extreme situations and how they react to it and, and like you were saying before, kind of what they will do to to make things right again. Yeah, he's he's sort of a long way from the mangler. <laughs> well the mangler I'll, I'll explain the mangler. So the two Stephen King because I don't want to go on 
at too much length about any of the books I talk about. But I'll, I do want to mention two Stephen King books, which have been huge for me. And I'm a huge fan of his. Um, he's one of the three writers I'd have around the table if I could talk to, to writers and just kind of pick their grains, brains. Stephen King would definitely be one, one of them. I have tremendous respect for him. The first one is one of his earliest books. It's called Night Shift. And it's a collection of stories. And I read that probably about 10 or 11 years ago. And I just devoured it. And I, and I loved it. And it's one of the dumbest books you'll ever read. <laughs> and it, that include, I mean, every story. Does that include the Mangler? I didn't even, we didn't plan this, folks. It does include the Mangler. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Mangler is a story about, and this is what I want to say about Stephen King. Stephen King, especially in his early years, the guy would do anything to turn a trick in a horror story. <laughs> and he tried everything. And he would, he was like a used car salesman. He'd tell you on any idea. And the Mangler is a story about a killer washing machine. <laughs> no, yeah, or like a yeah, that's right. But I was going to say laundromat, but yeah, you're right, a washing machine essentially. In a laundromat, but then the kind of this goes to the origins of Stephen King's whole career because famously, he ca he came from great poverty. That's one of the things I respect about him the most. He came from nothing, and built his career out of his own creative muscle. Mm. And one of the things he did when he was a struggling, he made about six grand a year as an English high school English teacher. And he was working night shifts in a laundromat. And he would put a piece of plywood between two tables and put his typewriter there and type stories to try to sell to magazines. And so one of them he wrote was about a, uh, a washing machine that got possessed by something and started eating people, you know? And it's awesome. It's awesome. <laughs> and the whole book of Night Shift is is like that. It's filled with ridiculous horror schlock. That's just a great amount of fun. But I do want to say at that this was the early 70s and Stephen King was like any great artist was standing on the shoulders of, of the, the giants that came before him. And I just want to give a special mention to the first story of the book Night Shift. It's called Jerusalem's Lot. Not Salem's Lot. Jerusalem's Lot. Which is kind of a predecessor to the vampire novel he went on to write called Salem's Lot. And it's a short, it's about 10 or 12 pages and a very effective mounting horror tale, gothic tale about a guy in a castle uh, with things kind of scraping in the walls. And it's a, it's a gem of a horror story and it's genuinely scary. And even at his very young age, he did a great job kind of building the tension until whatever it is comes out from the walls. Mm. So Night Shift is the first book um, it's just great fun. It's schlock, gore, horror. Yeah, I mean, and the other book... Isn't that the one where the, there's a story about a guy who gets basically taken down by a by a whole troop of those little green army men that we used to play with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kids? yeah. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. It's hilarious. Yeah. He, gets, he gets fired up by little green troopers <laughs> in his apartment. And there's another one where a guy literally turns into like a blob of stuff in his apartment. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> it's an awesome book. I, I would, I'd love to read it again and again. And then uh, just very quickly, I'll mention a, a, a horror novel by Stephen King that I do think is genuinely scary. It is called The Shining. And everybody knows what The Shining is. So I'm not going to go into that at length. But what's really effective about The Shining, it's actually quite a scary book. Um, it builds the insanity of the, the Jack Torrance character that, Jack Nicholson played in the movie very slowly in the book. But what I think is really the most, the scariest thing about it is that Stephen King himself at the time was a young father of very small children who was 
struggling and just just being creamed alive by alcoholism and drug and drug addiction. And he was fighting his way out of that cage. He's lucky to be alive. Yeah. While he was creating this horror tale about a person who has kind of caught in this labyrinth and abandoned hotel that was closing in around him. So it was a metaphor for what he was going through as a young father who happened to be a terribly addicted to drugs and alcohol. But that's a genuinely scary book. And I, I don't want to go on any further because I want to give you your shot at your first one, but go Uncle Steve. No, that's a great point. And, and it really makes you appreciate the uh, achievement of The Shining. And, and this is what we're talking about. Like, why read horror? Well, some of these books are, are achievements, are really you know, incredible mm-hmm. literary achievements. For, for someone to you know, be in the throes of a, of a tremendous struggle like that, to be responsible, as you were saying before, talk about responsibility for young people under your charge and to be you know, hopelessly addicted and to be not making a lot of money and to be facing those mounted pressures, which, you know, we can all relate to that as, as parents. And, you know, a lot of horror is kind of working through, you know, your worst fears and your demons in a sense. And to be able to, sometimes you just have to manifest those and put them on the page in order to be able to fight them. And it's no, you know, it's, it's no different than somebody who goes through, you know, a 12 step program or, you know, uh, AA or anything like that. It's just, you know, these people are going to the mat and fighting for their lives and you get the, you know, to come up with also to come out of that with a, with a ripping horror novel is no small accomplishment, you know? So, yeah, really well said. I like, I like those points a lot. No, I mean, you prompted it. I mean, I, I think, I think right away, you know, you've said you've, you've underscored why there's value in this, in this particular genre, but I'm going to I'm going to start with one of the absolute masters of 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 that genre and that's H.P. Lovecraft. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I have, you know, in this discussion if anybody is is listening to this who is a horror fan or or is kind of like a little bit interested in horror and you might want to dip your toe into the water, I have a a, a volume and it was put out by the Modern Library series. And it and it contains two. This is a twofer. Contains two works of H.P. Lovecraft. One is his very famous, you know, kind of sci-fi slash horror novella called "At the Mountains of Madness," and it's coupled with a a a long essay that he wrote called "Supernatural Horror and Literature." And I want to heartily recommend both. So. It, I believe it starts with supernatural horror and literature, which is his. He 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 surveys basically a whole bunch of uh, authors and writers that came before him uh, that wrote in this genre of you know supernatural fiction. And there's he he cites so many works in in that long essay, you know, that I'm not going to be able to name here. But he introduced me to a whole ton of you know writers that I just didn't know anything about. Or, or had heard of, but, uh, you know, uh, he got me interested in reading more of them. Um, people like Ambrose Bierce, who's going to come, come up later, uh, or like somebody like, uh, if I'm saying this right, left Katie O'Hearn, or, you know, there are many, um, and even older, you know, uh, Harold Walpole, I think is a, is a British Gothic writer. And he kind of surveys basically horror writing essentially from like the late, you know, the Renaissance period almost until, you know, the 20th century. 
and it's a magnificent essay. And it just introduced me to a lot of great horror fiction from earlier generations that I wasn't familiar with. Uh, and it's very well written too. If anybody, you know, if you're, if you're into this kind of stuff, that's, it's like, that's an absolute must to read. And then his novella at the mountains of madness. And dude, I talked to you about this before. I, I, you may remember when I was reading it, you know, how I kind of gushed about it. I don't know how much you know about it. Have you ever read it? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Okay. Yeah. on your recommendation. So that, that is one of the wildest, and this, this should have come up in our weird and wild fiction episode. That is one of the wildest and weirdest and, and wackiest uh, stories that I've ever read. Yeah, and, definitely. Gosh, I mean, it, it is incredible. It just involves this uh, expedition to Antarctica. Um, you know, it, it's a lot like The Thing. You know, there was, uh, you know, it had to have influenced John Carpenter's The Thing, you know, from 1981. Because there's an expedition that's gone down there that, you know, disappeared. Nobody had heard from. There's another group of scientists that goes down there. And my memory on it is a little fuzzy, but I think I remember the high points. But they go down there and they're investigating what happened to this crew. And at some point they find, you know, members of the crew and they've been like mutilated or, you know, they're, they're all killed off and they can't figure out. And they also find, uh, I believe they find, you know, different species down there, plants and animals that have never been seen before. And then they find, you know, some, some dead members of this, of this crew that had been down there. And then they, so it sounds exactly like alien too. Yeah. I mean, aliens in there and um, things in there. And then they go over this mountain Ridge and essentially they end up discovering the ruins of an old civilization. When I say old, it predates any of the geologic, eras that we know of and it becomes clear that this is some kind of an alien civilization that was founded there you know millennia and millennia ago and has long since departed but when they kind of go explore the ruins they there are all kinds of murals on the walls and the murals kind of depict the history of this other race that had been living down there in antarctica and it just it just gets weirder and weirder and weirder and um, there's a, I think there's a race that lived there that they end up uh, re referring to as the elder. I think it's the elder beings, where the where the uh, aliens that lived in the in this these ruins and they're just wildly described. And then and then in, in the ruin, the murals on the wall kind of describe this whole history of this colony here in Antarctica. And it goes deeply into that. And there's some kind of even greater evil that's, you know, in another mountain <laughs> range. And that is like, you know, kind of vaguely hinted at. And then at the end of the, you know, not to spoil it, but, you know, a couple people survive this whole ordeal and they're being, I can't remember whether they're, uh, I think they might be, I don't remember how they're leaving, but one of them kind of takes a glimpse back and apparently gets a, gets a look at this even greater evil creature that's living there among these mountains. And he goes insane just from a glimpse, you know, of whatever's <laughs> living there. But I mean, this is, this is one of the wildest stories I've ever read. It's completely nuts. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very intricate, like world building and uh, you know, it involves like alien languages and civilizations and uh, works of art. And it's just an incredible work of the imagination. So it's always stayed with me. And uh, to me, it's one of the great, it's one of the great uh, works of horror fiction that I've ever read. So that that's uh, two from HP Lovecraft. And then I'll kick it back over to you. 
Yeah, H.P. Lovecraft, like that, those are great ones, and and nobody gets further down deeper <laughs> than him. Um, I you gave me a great volume of his. I think it was like uh, a a gift for finishing one of my books, which is awesome, and I really appreciated that. <laughs> um, called the thing, the thing in the doorstep, oh, yeah. and it was a collection, a, a, a very large collection of H.P. Lovecraft tales, and they were just, I mean, nobody gets weirder. Than than H.P. Lovecraft, and just when you think it can't go, both figuratively and literally deeper, darker, uh, they do. Like you know, I remember another story of his had a guy in this like catacombs, kind of similar, but then there was he was introduced to these other creatures that were in these huge holes that went down like you know you know hundreds of feet into the earth, and he could only just catch a glimpse of them, <laughs> and they were like these slimy subterranean like deep in the bowels of the earth things sliding underneath us yeah. and there's tremendous power of metaphor you know in those in those scary stories that really like you know um they, they kind of stretch your mind you know like, like they, yeah they really do so those are great examples but i want to move on to uh, a much more obscure writer and john you knew this was coming as you and i have talked about this um so I would like to introduce to people listening what I have to say, and I just reread it tonight before we before we came to do this podcast, which I think might be out of out of all the horror, at least the horror short stories I've read, it might be the scariest one I have ever read. And I just want to say, like, you know, you know, we were talking about film and we mentioned how it's easier to scare people. I think in a movie context, that's because of the power of images and, you know, shadow and light and all that kind of stuff, but just stringing words together and, and literally scaring people. I can't speak for you, John, but I think maybe I've been, I mean, literally scared by, I could probably count on one or two hands, you know, the number of books or stories that I really found literally terrifying. Right. But the story I'm going to mention right now uh, is one of them. Uh, there's a writer named Thomas Ligotti. L-I-G-O-T-T-I. Kind of obscure, but known to horror fans. Um, who, I, I don't know if he's still alive or not. I don't know much about him. I don't know much about his other books, but he kind of has wallowed behind the scenes in obscurity, even in horror circles, for years and years, except for people who are really in the know, I guess. And um, a few years ago, you gave me this book, because you knew I was a big fan of horror, just like yourself, yep. and there was a reprinting of two of this man's uh, sort of cult favorite short story collection. One was called Grim Scribe, Grim Scribe, all one word. And the other was called Songs of a Dead Dreamer. And they were published by um, the Modern Library, I believe. Was my, or was it Penguin? No, I think it was Penguin Classics. Yeah, I think it was, Penguin Classics. I, I want to say Penguin Classics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Um, the Lovecraft volume we were talking about was Modern Library. But um, yeah. So they republished these collections of short stories and, you know, again, another twofer. And I believe that the first, I, if I don't, if I have this right, I think the first volume in the twofer is the songs of a dead dreamer. And the first story in that volume is called the frolic. And that story is absolutely terrifying. <laughs> and it is a, it is a master. And I'm not going to try to explain the plot. There's not enough time. It's just a story about a, um, young couple and the man works at a prison which is also sort of a it's a it's a prison for like the criminally insane 
kind of like an Arkham Asylum type place from the Batman. Yeah. Uh, so and he comes home from work one night and he's talking to his wife about his day. And that's all I'm going to say. Oh, man. You know, it's about a 15 or 16 page story, but there's little details from his day and from one prisoner in particular that's dropped in and the terror that's only alluded to sort of outside the walls of even the town and the house or the house and the town from the prison, which is on the outskirts of the town begins to seep in from these little details that Thomas Ligotti puts into the story. And the, the terror kind of approaches literally kind of walks across the, the walls of the prison, across the town and across the walls of the house and into the house. And, um, it ends on such a terrifying note that I, I just reread it tonight and it's, and it's, um, <laughs> hey, Jude, you there? Okay. So anyway, just to wrap up on the Thomas Sagata story, I just want to recommend to everybody that you interested in a really terrifying tale to go check that out and that's just the first story and there there's a two uh, big collections and they're they're unbelievable that is a genuinely frightening writer so uh that'll do it for that book i'll kick it back over to you yeah um sorry for the little technical glitch there folks um but yeah you shared that story with me and you know i i just agree wholeheartedly it it is you said it before it's very hard. To, it's very hard to, to genuinely scare you with just the written word without visuals. But that story does it. And it's a master class, like you were saying, of just dropping little details, um, just like great movies do. They kind of drop a little detail and you know it's going to come back somehow, but you know, don't know how. In this story, you don't even really realize that first part. It's just a little detail that kind of is thrown in there. And it comes back in such a masterful way. And then you realize a puzzle has been being, you know, constructed this whole time, you know, kind right. of unaware. And again, that's another reason why the best horror fiction can be so appealing because the craft of it, you know, to kind of put the little pieces together without you quote unquote, seeing it or realizing it and then springing the trap at the end is really, it is incredibly difficult to do. So that's yeah, it's like it's like a watchmaker, you know. That's right, and that's another reason why horror fiction, you know, has value because it's just it takes such great talent to be able to do that so effectively. But that story, I can't think of a better example of a horror story that does that and just, you know, <laughs> punches you in the stomach at the end so hard, you know. But I know we dare we dare you all to check it out. <laughs> well, yeah, literally, I'll end it. I'll end it there. Um, so the next thing I have to share is like, you know, how you, you go see like a, like a band, but usually it's like an established band, like a classic band that's been around for a long time. It might be the police or Bruce Springsteen, the E street band or Tom Petty, whoever you want to, you know, you want to cite there and or Elvis Costello, for example, you know, and they like at the end of the concert, sometimes they'll just, they'll play a medley of some of their greatest songs, you know, and just kind of mash them all together. You get like eight for the price of one. You know what I'm saying? You get like a, a, med a medley. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what this is going to be. I've got a little bit of a medley that I want to perform here, you know, for my next. Nice. And, it, <laughs> and it's a medley of classic short stories. You mentioned before we were going to talk about some short stories. 
And I mentioned before the, the essay Supernatural Horror and Literature by H.P. Lovecraft, which introduces you to the great tradition of uh, horror fiction, and often that, that's short fiction. So I've got to, you know, I noticed when I was putting my list together of, of things I wanted to talk about, there were a number of just great short stories that, you know, uh, were among my favorite examples of this kind of fiction. And we could go on a whole other tangent about how some of the most effective horror fiction is actually short fiction. And, and, you know, why is that? You know, there's something about the economy of being, being able to scare you in 20 pages or 40 pages that makes it all the more remarkable. So I've got to, I'm just going to kind of run through kind of the greatest hits from a number of different artists here of stories that are all of, all of these stories I would highly recommend. And they all, you know, I'd venture to say they're all from older writers, but I'd venture to say that they pretty much across the board would, you know, still have the capacity to not only scare you, but kind of blow you away with their craft. The first writer I want to mention is named Daphne du Maurier. And she's very well known uh, among horror fans all around the world, but they might not realize that they know her because she's, she's this, she's the writer who's behind two very famous uh, scary movies. One is called the birds by Alfred Hitchcock. Another is called don't look now, which was directed by Nicholas rogue. Uh, those are two very popular horror films. And they're based on, they're both based on short stories by Daphne du Maurier. And I have a, I have a volume of her short stories and those two stories are, are definitely the standouts in that volume. And I just want to say, don't look now is if you're not familiar with it, it's a, it's a, it's a story about a couple that loses their daughter. Uh, she dies and they, and, and they're in the process of grieving. They decide to go to Venice together. The husband is an architect and some strange, they go to Venice and they meet some strange people there. Some strange things keep start to happen and they start to see, think that they see their daughter running around the streets. When she died, she was wearing a very distinctive red raincoat. And so there's a vision of a little girl running through the, you know, the narrow and, and you know, alleyways of Venice in a red raincoat. And uh, the, the grieving mother sees, sees these visions as a sign that she's trying to, you know, contact them. And the father is very skeptical, but things just keep getting weirder and weirder. And there's a shocking conclusion to this story that uh, still has the power to shock. Have you seen Don't Look Now? The film version? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's a great movie, and the movie adheres very closely to the yeah. story. That's just one of the great kind of twist-ending stories that you'll ever encounter. Now, conversely to that, The Birds, the short story The Birds, is what people don't generally know, and it's very different than Hitchcock's version. Hitchcock took the basic idea of birds attacking humans, and that's about it. And that's about the only thing that's similar between his version and Daphne du Maurier's version. His version takes place in San Francisco, I believe. Um, du Maurier's version takes place on, on, in Cornwall of England, where she's from, on the British coast. And it's actually kind of like a siege story, where the bulk of the story is about a farmer and his family, and he starts noticing strange activity from the birds uh, both over the water and kind of on the waves and also all around his property and in his 
village. And uh, he starts to notice just kind of some menacing patterns and no one else seems to be really worried about it. Essentially what he does is, you know, they start, the birds start attacking people in his community and he and his family kind of hole up in their cottage and you know, they just, it, it's a siege. And at the end of the story, you know, they basically attack and it kind of has this cliffhanger ending, but they're just coming in, but it is just, um, it, in a very different way from uh, Hitchcock's version, it's it's a this masterclass in suspense, and it also is kind of like weirdly prescient in the way it kind of comments on, you know, how uh, changes in the environment might affect creatures, you know, and we've kind of seen that even in the coronavirus pandemic, how you know there have been stories of you know various species and animals kind of like venturing out more boldly than they ever did before. Well, this, that's what this story does. And it just kind of takes it to another level. It's fantastic. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. yeah. Great point about the current incidents. Yeah. yeah they're both really scary. Um, the second, in, in, in all these cases, I'm going to cite four different writers, two stories from each. I'll try to do this quickly if I can. The second one is probably the most well-known Edgar Allan Poe, just a master of uh, frightening fiction um one of the earliest fiction stories i ever read was the telltale heart which most a lot of people would be familiar with still one of the scariest stories that i can think of just basically about a man a guy who lives with an older man who has this this eerie kind of vulture-like eye that basically drives him crazy he ends up murdering the old man because he just can't take anymore this guy's eye and he buries him under the floorboards and then some people come to investigate what happened to the old man and uh, he, what, what the, the genius of the story is that he starts hearing what he thinks is the heartbeat of the old man under the floorboards. And you never know whether it's just in his mind or whether there's actually something happening, but it just kind of drives him nuts. And he ends up confessing to the murder of the old man. But the genius is you don't know if it's in his head or not. And it's just a brilliant yeah, yeah. psychological tale. And then there's another one called the cask of uh, Amontillado. I think it's called, I might be getting that pronunciation wrong, uh, but it's a similar, it's kind of a suspenseful tale of a guy who um, for some reason he wants revenge. It's been a long time since I read, but he wants revenge on somebody that he knows and he takes him down this tour and this like old, I believe it's in Italy and they're, they're going through this old castle and they go down to the wine cellar and Amontillado or whatever. I'm probably butchering that name, but it's a type of wine. So he wants, this guy's a fan of wine and he's inebriated the guy that he's trying to murder. And uh, he happens to be (laughs) just for fun, Jude happens to be wearing like a jester outfit, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I forgot that. <laughs> That's always freaky. And uh, so anyway, he basically lures him. He says, you know, the, the 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 wine that I really want you to sample is in this is in this area over here in the cellar. And he basically the guy's so inebriated, he gets him in there and then he chains him to the wall. And he has um uh there's something in about you know Freemasons like masonry, and one of the symbols for masonry is this trowel. So there's this trowel there and he, and he ends up basically troweling, taking bricks and kind of troweling him, you know, building a brick wall and kind of like basically sealing him in there alive. 
So it's this great, like, you know, kind of twisted, you know, tale, but they both just have such an incredible atmosphere. You know, if you never read some of the famous Edgar Allan Poe stories, you really need to. And then there's um, the writer Ambrose Bierce, who I mentioned before, and he has a number of just stunning short stories that have these incredible either premises or endings. Uh, I'll mention three of them. One is called the, the Incident in Owl Creek Bridge, which is probably his most famous. You remember that one? I remember the I remember the story. It's a famous story, but I can't I can't say I really remember the details of that one. Well, what I remember is that there's a guy, and he's I think he's a Civil War veteran, and he's going back home. And yeah, I mean, my memory's very very uh, spotty about it too. But he ends up on this bridge, and he had he ends up uh, sort of taking his own life by hanging by dropping himself off this bridge and hanging himself. But before he does that. He has this whole flashback to his back to his family farm where he imagines him with his wife. And there's this whole extended flashback. And uh, then there's something that happens on the farm and it kind of jolts him back to reality. And then you realize the whole thing was kind of imagined. He imagined this entire, you know, last part of the story as he was falling from the bridge and the rope kind of snaps his neck. It's this incredible, you know, kind of like a, device that he uses to really throw you off. There's another amazing, there's another amazing story he wrote called Moxon's Master, which I found fascinating because it's about, it almost touches on like artificial intelligence. It's about like a robot, you know, and this is in like the 19th century, I think, or early 20th century, where he imagines this scientist who's built this automaton or robot that he plays chess with but the robot ends up getting angry at him and they get in this argument, the robot murders its master, but it's this, you know, it's like 20 pages, but it's this incredible kind of forward thinking story. Um, and then there's a third one, which is another master class of suspense. It's called the boarded window. And it's the whole story is just this guy in this like cabin in the woods and his wife has died. You know, he's like an old man who has a wife and she's died. And he spends, you know, he's there lying with her at night and he hears something in the cabin with them and he can't quite picture what it is. And he kind of goes through the suspense of there's something in the cabin with us. And he's not sure if it's like the spirit of his wife or whatever. And then he hears like a dragging across the floor. And, you know, as morning comes, he realizes that like a wildcat or like a panther has snuck in and is dragging his wife out of the window by her neck. <laughs> you know, but it's you know that's, that's pretty macabre stuff. But it, it's just like the suspense yeah. of the story. It, you know, it, it kind of puts you in mind of like these people who lived at, like in the in the pioneer days. You know, out in the wilderness, they didn't know what they were doing. You know, and like your imagination can, just, can run wild. So that was an amazing story as well. And then the last two that I'll just mention very quickly are from the great. A uh, British writer who's kind of known most for his ghost stories, who's by the name of M.R. James. I know you've heard of him. And he has two stories as well that have been adapted numerous times into films. One is called Casting the Runes. And it was made into this movie, this old movie in the, I think, in the 1930s, late 1930s, called Night of the Demon, which is an amazing movie. I know Martin Scorsese has cited it as one of his favorite movies. It's a really great old horror movie with kind of a twist ending. Um, 
And then there's a second story that I'll mention by M.R. James, which is called Whistle and I'll Come for You, My Lad. And it's about this British guy. He takes this, he takes this uh, weekend on the British coast, and he's, uh, I think he's like an anthropologist or something, and he's investigating these ruins, and he finds this old whistle that has these like Latin inscriptions on it. And I can't remember what they say, but they, one of them is, has something to do with, you know, the, the title, like whistle and I'll come for you or something like that. And of course he ends up blowing the whistle, you know, and then he's staying alone in this old, like, you know, castle or B and B or something. And of course the person who's running, running, it has to go home because their son is deathly ill and he's there by himself for a few nights and he just hears activity going on in the place. And he realizes that, you know, somehow by blowing this whistle, he's summoned, you know, some kind of spirit from the other world or something like, but it's just, you know, and it has this great ending. Um, it's just a really, all of these are just great example of older stories that really are still effective. You could read any of the ones that I just mentioned. And I think it would, I think it would put a chill into you. So this is my kind of, opportunity to say that you know don't neglect the older stories because some of the classics are classics for a reason yeah those are great to mention all those i mean you know they really are and, and i'm not familiar with all those you bring up certainly edgar Allan poe has story after story though where he just slowly builds up in a short short period of time slowly builds up to just mortal terror no. And you know, and uh, and they still strike to strike to the core. There are lots of stories he wrote that are much more obscure that it, that fit the bill there. And also, mostly story. It's a good thing you brought these up. Is most of the stories you mentioned, you can find them because they are classics. You can find them on the internet or go out and grab one of them and read it. You know, it'd be easier to find than something like the Frolic, probably. Uh, Although, although if you're interested in the frolic, I wouldn't discourage you from going out and searching for it. No, that's uh, <laughs> do you remember, by the way, do you remember, I remember when we were like young kids and this is where you get into the brother territory here between you and I, but we actually brought home like either an LP or some kind of audio version of telltale heart that we played via audio and somebody was reading it. And there was like this, you know, thumping sound of a heart. Do you remember that? I remember hearing that when I was a kid, and listen to it and it really chilled me and it kind of still stays with me to this day. I don't know if you remember that. I do kind of vaguely. I mean, I, I feel like it was like Vincent price or yeah, somebody great right. like that. Something you know? like that. Um, but uh, although generally horror didn't, you know, like I said at the beginning, it didn't, didn't imprint me so much as a, as a child, it wasn't with me always. It was kind of more like something I got into when I was, really more interested in the mechanics of fiction, to be honest, but that, uh, but I do have a, a memory of that. And there are other stories that sort of remain from, from childhood that I could probably drum up if I tried real hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, so I'll, this is going to be kind of my last volley and I'll just mention, I want to mention three, I'm going to, I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to mention three novels by canonical American writers that are not, like horror novels that filled me with terror, particularly at the end of them. And there it's three novels, but it's by two people. So I'm going to bring up uh, the first one is, or the, the first two is, um, in one of our, um, in, in, in fact, in our first episode about the fiction books that made us, one of the books I brought up was by Cormac McCarthy. 
um, who's a famous writer who's still with us um, and is one of the um, highest regarded American novelists out there. He's most famous for the, the book All the Pretty Horses, which won the National Book Award, and for books he's written about the West. But the book that I brought up was called, um, the first book I want to mention is called Blood Meridian. And, and with the subtitle or the alternate title of The Evening Redness in the West, The Evening Redness in the West. And uh, if, you, if anybody was listening to the first episode, it's like the most violent and bloodiest book I've ever read of any genre by many, many horse lengths. <laughs> and it, but it's about, it's not a horror book necessarily, or at least not straight up. It's about um, um, like the, basically a, a kid that gets caught up into a, uh, a marauding horse gang, but it's kind of a, and that's uh, kind of plundering across the American West in the days of the wild West, the wild frontier, but it's sort of a metaphor for America's westward expansion. That's why there's so much blood and violence in it. Cause it's this horse gang goes around and just basically like <laughs> rapes and pillages basically, but, but really, you know, um, does great, incredible violence to native Americans in particular. But and it's a it's an epic novel with a lot of facets, but it has this uh, central figure of evil in this novel. Um, it's a character named the Judge, and he's this. And I described this in the in our first episode. But it's this, this immense, physically immense character with a with an kind of an albino, like a white, sort of almost like an alternate version of Melville's White Whale, you know, like the ultimate destroyer or the ultimate enemy. So he's like this hulking figure of pure evil, and he's a, like an agent of evil in this book. And the book is notable and for many, many reasons. It has like this really like almost biblical, arcane prose, and it has this incredible violence in it, and it's really powerful and sometimes stomach churning, and brings up very profound questions. But then it ends uh, with that character, the judge, and I don't want to say what happens, but there's a scene at the end of the book where the judge is has committed these heinous, heinous acts of violence throughout the novel, and he's shown in a state of great mirth. I'll just put it that way. At the end of the book, in this incredible scene, um, and then it has this uh, a final sort of heinous act of violence, which is implied kind of off camera. And then, lastly, it shows the shows the judge in this state of kind of glee, you know, kind of having like a celebration. And it is an incredible ending to the book that contains so much violence because this figure of evil is kind of triumphant at the end of it and kind of just enjoying himself and it's written in such a way that it's that it's like just it's so striking and so terrifying that you know uh, this evil sort of demonic figure in the novel is basically triumphant at the end of it and all that it kind of implies about all the events that went before and the country in which it's all set i thought was an, a terrifying ending and an effective ending so that's Blood Meridian. That's by Cormac McCarthy. And then Cormac McCarthy has many other books, and almost all of them are worth reading. One of his earlier books is a book called Outer Dark, which is, you know, I, I would at least call it like a Southern Gothic novel. It's extremely dark, like the title implies. And it's, and it, and it, it's kind of a terrifying book also. And it's a shorter book, but it, it's a book that involves like a brother and sister who have this like, and they're living in like the backwoods of Tennessee I think it's Tennessee and they have this incestuous relationship and they have a child and then the child vanishes after this like uh, 
group of kind of gypsies um, kind of pass through the area where they're in and their child vanishes. And then it shifts to the point of view of the, the, the brother kind of um, wandering around the deep south in like the 19th century in the backwoods of Tennessee, you know, the days before electricity and whatnot, searching for this child that he lost. And at the end of the book, he finds the child and the child is, I don't want to give too much away, but the child is sort of, uh, um, doesn't have a good end. I guess, I guess that this kind of give it away, but like, you know, like, uh, you know, it has this, this scene of terrifying, you know, I, would, I guess I would say violence to innocence. And I just bring it up because it's one of these books that you're kind of dreading and you're sort of feeling that it's going to go to a certain place before the end of the novel. But you, you're, you're positive, you convince yourself that it's not going to go all the way there. And then it goes all the way there and like further than that, you know. Mm. And it's like an incredibly powerful tale um, that really is chilling and terrifying. So that book's called Outer Dark. And the last book I want to mention is by the Nobel Prize winning American writer named Toni Morrison called Beloved. And Beloved is not a horror story. but And it's a very famous novel. But anybody who knows what happens at the end of Beloved knows that it's a horror moment for sure. And I bring it up because it's terrifying. So I'm I'm going to spoil it because, uh, you know, it's part of the American canon. And, you know, I know you read it, John. And a lot of people know yeah. what happens at the end of the book. But the beloved is the story of this uh, slave, um, a woman, an African-American woman who's a slave living in Ohio, whose name is Sete. I, I thought it was Seth, but it's Sete because I heard it on the documentary. And uh, unless I'm saying it wrong, but I think it's Sete. And she is, and it's her story about her living in slavery and the ups and downs of her life. And then she has a child while she's a slave and gives birth and then escapes somewhere toward the end of the book, escapes uh, from her captors with the child. And then at the very end of the book, she's recaptured. And then in a very famous scene at the end of this book, that's so devastating whether you know it or not, to encounter it on the page is where she's recaptured by the people that are going to make her a slave again. And she's in a abandoned shack with her baby. And rather than subject the baby to a life of slavery that she knows that baby, her daughter will experience, she slits her daughter's throat in an, in an act of love, you know, in a way, in a way that's hard to understand for you and I, but to sit, prevent her from living life as a slave. Wow. So that is a terrifying ending to an uh, incredibly powerful novel that on the basis of that book alone probably won her the Nobel Prize because it, it just absolutely, um, it speaks so powerfully about the black experience mm. in America historically. So Beloved is the book that I'll, that I'll close on. Wow. Um, unflinching is the word that comes to mind, you know, with the ending of that book, for sure. Not comfortable in any way, shape or form, but uh, also unflinching. So there's, you know, there's a certain integrity there, you know, somewhere in the mix, in the mix of all the things you feel, even when you hear that described. 
Um, yeah. Well, I'm going to switch gears here. My last choice, I decide I've got a couple others that I just want to mention, but the last one I'll talk about here is, is, is in, in the first category that I mentioned way back when this one is just kind of more fun. And I wouldn't call this like, I mean, it's not like Edgar Allan Poe <laughs> or HP Lovecraft or even Stephen King. Um, but it's one of the horror stories that I read, um, kind of recently that has stayed with me because it was a hell of a lot of fun. And also I thought it was pretty original and kind of an interesting mix of different ideas. And uh, you probably know where I'm going with this. It was a, it was a, it's a book called horror store with umlauts over the last O by Grady Hendrix. Grady Hendrix is kind of a younger writer who's written a couple different, I guess you'd call them horror stories, but they kind of like play around with different genres. You know, he wrote one, uh, something about, uh, I think it was called my best friend's exorcism, you know? And then of course he wrote that, he, he kind of curated that book that I gave you called paperbacks from hell, which was like this big kind of encyclopedia of like ratty old, uh, you know, uh, horror paperbacks from the seventies and eighties, which just looks like so much fun to go through. Um, it's awesome. Yeah. Oh man. But horror store, uh, you know, uh, you, I think, well, the first time I remember, I, I came across it in some bookstore. I was out on a college visit with one of my sons and I sent you some pictures of it because I thought it looked so funny. And I, I think you might've heard of it before. Um, but it's this, it, you know, uh, it's, it's a lot of things. It's a horror story for sure, but it's also kind of a, it's certainly a cultural satire, but it's like a horror story. That's all set in this big box store. That's basically Ikea furniture. <laughs> you know, so, right. and the whole book is designed to look like an Ikea catalog, which is really creative. I mean, even the graphic design of this book is really something else. So it looks like, you know, yeah, it's you brilliant. Know, yeah, it's brilliant. It's right down to like the, like weird, like Scandinavian names and each of the chapters are named for a different piece of furniture. And it gives you like a diagram of how to put it together. It has this really strange name, but then, you know, once you've turned the page, there's some, you know, horror hijinks that happen within the store. All takes place in one night when this kid. And each, uh, each I'm sorry to interrupt, but each, each piece of furniture gets increasingly like torturous looking. Yeah, that's right. Know? That's right. Like they all get, they get, oh, it's just, I mean, there's so many elements of it. So it's, it's got a little bit of like office space in it or, you know, kind of a workplace satire. These guys in this sort of dead end job and they're working a night shift, but then, you know, some weird things happen in the store and it's sort of funny, but then it's not so funny. And then it gets just truly weird. I, I mean, it, it's, it's both hilarious and it's also kind of effective as a, as a horse. I mean, you could really see this being developed into a movie and then it happened. I was reading up on it a little bit today and I guess it was being developed as a TV series, but now apparently it's shifted and it is going to be made into a movie. It'd be really interesting to see if that ever comes out. If it's in the right hands, it could be a lot of fun, but it's essentially, you have, to, yeah. you have to envision if you've ever been like on a shopping trip with your wife or something and for furniture at Ikea or something like that, a big box store of any kind. It's like one night, you know, there are lots of famous horror movies. It's like one night in X in like a castle or one night in an office or a radio station or whatever it might be. This is like a big box furniture store where you know, just some some bad shit stuff starts to go down. Excuse my French, and it just and it it gets pretty crazy by the end of the book. And I I just thought it was a very original, 
B, funny, and C, it got, you know, pretty nuts by the end of the book. Pretty, I wouldn't say it was like, it didn't scare the crap out of me or anything, but it was scary enough that it was kind of effective on a number of levels and just really, just really inventive. And, you know, so that's a much more recent title that I wanted to throw in there because I, that, that book is a lot of fun. So if you, if you, if you're someone who, you know, thinks you'd appreciate horror fiction, that's like sort of fun to read, like, like Stephen King, or I don't know, um, just a little bit more fun along with the kind of thrills and chills than horror store might be a, might be a book for you. And then lastly, it's hard. I, I do want to mention two more American classics, uh, and um, that they're they're pretty well known, but I've read them both, and they're very chilling books, and they just deserve a quick mention. One is very famous. It's The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, probably the most famous American haunted horse house story there is, famously developed into a movie called The Haunting that was made by Robert Wise in the 1960s, which is an excellent movie, um, and also more recently developed into a, a uh, series by Netflix, which I thought was less successful, although in some ways more faithful to the source material. I don't think, have you ever read The Haunting of Hill House? No, I've read Shirley Jackson, but not The Haunting of Hill House. Yeah, a lot of people have read The Lottery. It's a very... Yeah, great story. The Haunting of Hill House is a is psychological horror, probably at its finest, and also kind of like ghost story. Um, I won't, you know, it, a bunch of people in an in an old house uh, that has a you know a past of paranormal activity, but she does a masterful job of of uh, making you question the sanity of certain characters. And by the end, you really don't know whether the whole thing was imagined by one of the protagonists or not. But it's just a master class in kind of building up suspense uh, in the way that the best horror fiction does. And then the last one I want to mention. This wouldn't be considered horror fiction at all, but I wanted to mention it because I'll just tell you, Jude, that I I, I considered a couple uh, books for this list that would be more in the crime genre. And I'm thinking of two writers in particular. One is Jim Thompson. And the book I'm going to mention here is The Killer Inside Me. And another one is Derek Raymond, who is a British crime writer that you introduced me to. And he has many books that are you know crime novels but they're also they're just so chilling in their depiction of human depravity and evil that i think they really kind of wander into horror territory um he died with his, uh-huh. he died with his eyes open which is the first in that factory series of books that derek raymond wrote that's just extraordinary but really strong stuff but just incredible writing but man uh he died with his eyes open is a gruesome book, but it's really effective. But the killer inside me is probably, you know, for some reason in this country, people, people are drawn to like serial killer stories or stories about sociopaths or psychopaths. I've never read a more chilling story in that, in that subgenre than the killer inside me by Jim Thompson, which is about a lawman sheriff who is just a monster. And he, but he is able to, you know, hide his monstrous activity because he's like this well-loved sheriff in this Texas town. But the acts he commits on the side that nobody sees are truly heinous. But Jim Thompson, 
you talk about uncompromising, uncompromising. I mean, he, he gets you, he takes you right along with this guy. And this, this character, Lou something, I remember his name is Lou, Lou Ford, I think. And he's got to be one of the most chilling characters in American literature. He really is. I mean, that is just kind of the mother of all crime novels in terms of how chilling and how disturbing it is. So I just thought it was worth a mention, but Jim Thompson, although very, very strong stuff uh, is kind of the master of that type of writing. And if you're into, I don't know, who's into dark crime fiction, but uh, if you find that kind of story interesting, Jim Thompson is kind of like the gold standard for that. So I just thought I would mention that. And that really kind of wraps up my list, man. I mean, we've covered a lot of ground here on this show. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was so excited for. Just a little side note on Jim Thompson. Um, I've read about him a ton since I, I, like my early 30s when I went to graduate school, but I didn't know anything about him when I went to graduate school. And when I was trying to get into the program, I took the train into New York City to sit down across the desk from the director of the creative writing program at the new school in New York City, and I had an interview with him for about an hour. And it wasn't until years later that I realized that he was Jim Thompson's biographer. Wow. His name was Robert Polito, and he wrote a biography of Jim Thompson called Savage Grace. Mm. I think it won uh, one of those big awards, right? I didn't even know who Jim Thompson was, you know? And I, I still, I think I have read one book by Jim Thompson years ago, but I don't remember it well. But he's somebody I really want to catch up with. But I remember you talking about um, the killing inside me. Yeah, and, and uh, there's a lousy film version of it, even though it stars a great actor, Casey Affleck, but uh, or a very talented actor. But it's a. I just want to caution: it's nowhere near. Uh, just go read the book if you're interested, because the movie is the movie is like all of the ugliness of it, but none of the craft. So if you are interested in the craft at all, go read the Jim Thompson novel. Although I caution you because it'll stay with you if you do read it. Yeah, and the same thing is true about the Factory series of novels written by um, Derek Raymond. Yeah. But those are incredibly powerful books, though. They're amazing books. And if anybody's interested in those, they're all published by a little publisher in New York City called Melville House. Um, and there are five novels. Another one is called How, How the Dead Live. Yeah. So I can see why I thought Derek Raymond is the one person that I did think of when putting my list together. Because it uh, definitely fits into terrifying material. But you got to have a strong stomach for some of that really dark crime stuff. You do. So anyway, let's wrap it up there, John. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll talk about what we're reading next uh, briefly, and then we can tease uh, episode nine. Let's take a quick break. All right, cool, John. Um, what do you have coming up next on your reading table? Well, really quickly, I already mentioned, you know, I just started this other book about Newfoundland, Newfoundland and Labrador. So that's kind of, uh, it's it, it's what I'm reading now, but it's kind of what I'm going to read too, because I literally just started. But I always have something on my on-deck circle after that. And so uh, I love reading about technology and the way it impacts our culture and our society. 
So there's a book that came out either last year or towards the end of the year before um, about some of the recent scandals around Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> it's called Zucked by Roger <laughs> Mac McNamee, I think is the name of the writer, but it's, it's, it's all about kind of the recent history of Facebook and some of the troubles they've got in around the uh, 2016 election and their issues with privacy and the and the decisions that Mark Zuckerberg has made. And, you know, when you think of the influence of Facebook on the world, uh, you know, that, that I just don't see how that couldn't be fascinating. So I'm really looking forward to, even though I'm not a Facebook user, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to reading about, you know, all of that. And, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is such a strange guy in some ways. And uh, I think it's going to be fascinating to kind of learn a little bit more about him and, and the company that he runs. So, you know, I'm going to, in a couple of weeks or whatever, I'm going to, I'm going to be zucked. So how about you? <laughs> yeah, you are going to be zucked. <laughs> yeah. You talk about automatons that you mentioned earlier. That's a Mark Zuckerberg kind of looks like one of yeah. those, but uh, you know, I don't know him personally, so I don't want to say too much. Right. Uh, great choice. And then I, I should have had you go second because you're going to tee up episode nine for us, which is really quick. Um, so I'm reading The Exorcist now. And after this book, I decided to go to a totally different genre and one that I don't dabble in too much. I'm really looking forward to this. I read two novels by this writer, very famous writer, long time ago, like when in like my early 20s. Uh, one was called The Honorable Schoolboy, and the other one was called The Russia House. And I'm talking about John le Carre. Wow. And he's a famous um, uh, spy novelist, uh, particularly um, who's still with us, still alive and working and coming out with novels. Um, but he particularly is masterful about the Cold War. And I'm reading a book from the last 10 or 12 years called Our Kind of Traitor, which I don't know a darn thing about. I, I happened to hear a couple of years ago um, a, an interview with him on Fresh Air with Terry Gross on NPR, where he was talking about another novel, another novel he wrote about his father, based on his father's life, which was called A Perfect Spy. The interview was so fascinating and John Le Carre himself was so elegant and graceful in the interview that I thought I, I'm going to give I'm going to give this guy's books another another go. <laughs> so I found the the book called Our Kind of Traitor, and that's up next for me. I don't know anything about it, so I'm looking forward to diving in. Well, wow, there's a there's a good recommendation kind of nestled in the middle of those comments. I'm gonna I'm definitely gonna look up the uh, interview between him and Terry Gross. That sounds awesome. Yeah, worth listening to. So, John. That's going to do it for our episode, but tell us what's coming up in episode nine. Yeah, episode nine is going to be interesting and a little bit different than uh, some of our past episodes. And uh, this is an idea that my brother Jude here came up with, although it was one I was sort of circling around myself. So a few episodes back, or I don't remember which one, but uh, I know the, the writer David Foster Wallace has been mentioned on this podcast a few times. Um, he had a, a book of essays, I believe, that was called, and one of the essays is the titular essay, but you know, the book was called this as well, but one was called A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again. And what we want to do in, in episode nine is we're going we're gonna, to uh, have a show that's called A Supposedly Good Book I'll Never Read Again, or Great Book. I might have messed that up. Supposedly Great Book. Oh, either one. Yeah. <laughs> So what we want to dive into is, you know, books that we came to by their reputation, essentially, because they, you know, have been lauded as either classics or just been talked about quite a bit or recommended 
or, you know, just widely read that we came to sort of with, with eager anticipate anticipation, you know, to kind of, to kind of get our own sense of it. And we're disappointed by, so it's going to be an episode. That's why it's a little bit unusual. It's going to be episode kind of filled with disappointments essentially, and not necessarily recommendations, but we're going to kind of get into books that we've read um, that have been widely acclaimed that just didn't, that missed the mark for us personally and kind of get into why that was. And, you know, there may be some debate or, you know, there may be some surprises or something, but it should be a lot of fun and a little bit different for us. Um, so that's episode nine. So a supposedly great book. I will never read again. Yeah. It's going to be Turkey time. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we're going we're to talk about, talk about books that, you know, are supposed to be good. And we thought were turkeys flat, flat out. And why, and why. exactly. <laughs> So that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, that's going to do it for us, folks. Uh, great episode, John. Uh, it was nice getting out in the dark with you. And um, we'll catch you all again next time. Yeah, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, we'll be back in another couple of weeks with another episode of the Book Exchange Podcast. Bye-bye. Take care, everyone. <laughs>